as we're waiting for the last people to, uh, to come in, we can uh, quickly introduce our speakers today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we are delighted to host the uh, today. Uh, and this uh, magnificent report, you will have seen it, there is a lot of read, a lot of very interesting graphs, and of course, a very interesting topic, the issue of investment. Uh, the report touches on, on sort of the three main themes, which is what investment, how to finance it, and then concentrated on the digital aspects of it and on the skills that are, of course, important, uh, important two top thematic, if I may say, uh, contributors to the issue of investment. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to introduce our speakers, uh, Deborah Revoltella, who is going to, to give us a, a summary of this, uh, of this opus, if I may. <laughs> Summary, maybe in, uh, in 20 minutes, if you can give us uh, give us a flavor of the graphs that are there. Are some very impressive graphs in the in the in the report that make a very interesting story, actually. Uh, and then we're going to have two very distinguished contributors to this conversation: uh, Roman Ariona, who is the chief economist at the European Commission on DG Research, and uh, uh, Mario Nava, who is the director at the DG Fisma, attacking the issue from slightly different perspectives. And, and then I would uh, like to open up the floor and see how we can. Uh, interpret both what is in the report, but also what is not in the report, and how we um, how we move forward, and also feed into the discussion what uh, you will be thinking about next year, which uh, you've already said that you're very actively thinking about. Mm -hmm. So, um, indeed, because these themes are not they're not yearly themes; they are themes that, that span uh, decades, and this is important that we put the right ingredients in place now as we're thinking about uh, the future. So, uh, why don't then with this uh, immediately go into the presentation? Deborah, um, you've got about 20 minutes, is that okay? And then we'll take maybe 10 minutes for, uh, for our panelists before we, we open up the floor for a great discussion. Thank you for coming, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much. So, I'm uh, really pleased that we have this opportunity of uh, presenting uh, our investment report. This is an annual publication, uh, the flagship economic publication of uh, the European Investment Bank. And it also leveraged uh, in the analysis on uh, our uh, unique survey of uh, 12,500 firms that we run on an annual basis, also linked uh, to balance sheet information of the firms. So we combine a lot of uh, macro analysis uh, with micro analysis to really have an overview of uh, the investment situation in Europe. And we are also very happy that we always collaborate with uh, other experts uh, from other institutions, <laughs> from uh, from uh, academia, and uh, it's uh, really a joint work in uh, trying to understand uh, what is happening uh, to investment in Europe and what is happening uh, to the European economy and uh, what are the challenges that we see today. And the message this year is uh, very clear for us. We, we see Europe at the uh, risk of uh, losing uh, it. Uh, and I think I can switch to this. We see Europe at the risk of losing its global rule. And we see a number of weaknesses of the European economy that has related to things well known and that we documented the inability to create innovators, the, the, the low investment in intangible, a financial sector that is too much bank-based and doesn't support innovation, a number of weaknesses of the European economy that become particularly worrying today. 
and the risk is uh, uh, related to the new technologies, uh, new disruptive technologies, uh, digitalization uh, are creating a cost of inaction, and uh, the cost of inaction uh, is really the cost of uh, delaying uh, the transformation of our industry and services. The cost is already material now, and we believe that uh, this cost uh, is going uh, to be even increasing uh, and uh, to be something uh, long-lasting uh, if uh, Europe doesn't act now. So we call uh, for really um, acting now, retooling the European economy, work on a number of policies so that are policies that everybody's talking about uh, since ages, but it's really the moment uh, to be serious about that and do it uh, in a, a socially and environmentally sustainable way. I will come back to all this concept going on, but really the point is we are at a turning point. We already see the, the, the sign of losing the European rule, and we need to, to act and retool the European economy now in this social and environmental sustainable way. I go through the main message of the report. It's a 400-page report, <laughs> so there is much more than what I will tell you in... Uh, in uh, the next uh, 15 minutes, uh, we look at investment dynamics. Uh, so we start looking uh, at uh, investment in uh, the different areas of Europe. We group countries, and I tell it uh, at the beginning, into other EU. You can imagine core Europe, but the UK is in, so we called it other EU rather than core. Uh, then we have a cohesion that is a centralist in Europe, and we have the periphery that are the, the, the user countries more hit by the crisis, and Italy is, is among them, just to classify the different groups. I know that nobody likes naming of countries in group. We have a lot of troubles also internally in the institution to group countries in this way, but we still think that it's very important to to speak about different regions, because the different regions within Europe actually have different dynamics. If we look at the first graph, we see the investment intensity, gross fixed capital formation over GDP. And what we see is in other EU, basically, we are, we are actually a good level. We have come back from the crisis years, and we are at a sustainable level of investment, a long-term average, if you want. The cohesion countries, we know there is a lot of uh, effect of uh, first uh, the, the, the boom year, then uh, the effect of the crisis, a lot of uh, cyclicality associated to the EU structural fund cycles. But uh, we are now kind of converging at levels that we think still are relatively low. If you look, we are very close to level of investment intensity, very close to the other EU countries, while the EU cohesion countries are countries that are still building the capital stock. So having just a one percentage point of GDP, more investment than other EU is probably not enough to help the rebuilding of this capital stock. And then we have the EU periphery where actually the effect of the crisis is very visible and still investment is converging but slowly to the pre-crisis, not only the pre-crisis levels that were obviously inflated, but long-term average. The convergence is still very much slow. If we look at the finance condition, 
We are talking of a period of a very accommodative monetary policy. We all know it. The cost of finance has been substantially reduced. And if we look, and that's come from our survey, we ask firms whether they consider finance a major obstacle. What you see is that there has been improvement in all the EU level and in the three region over here. Finance firms that consider finance as a major obstacle obstacles are relatively few, but there are differences among regions, and particularly the periphery is still showing more concern in terms of access to finance. But in general, the first graph is showing a convergence of investment and very supporting monetary policy conditions. There, yes. But uh, the, the second graph uh, starts show, the second slide starts showing uh, um, some more concerns. On the one side, side uh, headwinds are strengthening, and on the other side, we have a long-term growth is uh, a source of uh, uh, concern, as uh, has been said uh, many times in the last years. On uh, headwinds, uh, we ask uh, again uh, in our survey, we ask uh, firms uh, if they consider different factors to be supportive or negative uh, in terms of investment activities. And, and it's a, a kind of indication of sentiment uh, versus investment. What you see is uh, comparing uh, 2017 versus 2018, and the survey was done run uh, through the summer. So it's uh, really like uh, one of the first indication of uh, much uh, more uh, negative uh, stance in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, sentiment on a different factor on investment. What we see is uh, that uh, uh, there is a less optimism on uh, the economic climate as a supporting factor for investment and a much stronger negative stance of the political and regulatory climate affecting investment. Again, this was run over the summer, so I think it was a, a very first sign of the turning sentiment in the cycle of investment that we are now st starting to see more concrete uh, um, data that start coming up. And the second point is really is just a graph on potential output growth as an indication of long-term growth. And the message that I just want to give is that we all know that low potential growth is low. There are issues with aging on the one side, which productivity grow in Europe. So much more has to be done in order to look at these issues going forward. In this context, so is with recovery in investment, accommodative monetary policy, we had headwinds, we have long-term concerns, we start looking at the European economy and we highlight a number of weaknesses that are the weaknesses that I was mentioning before. Now there is something. Okay. okay, sorry. So, uh, a number of uh, weaknesses. The first uh, thing that we start looking at, uh, we look at uh, investment activities, and in this case, uh, we start comparing uh, the EU versus uh, the US. The first graph is showing uh, more macro data, and is showing investment in machinery and equipment and investment in the intangible. We have been talking for many years of a gap, EU versus US, in terms of investment in the intangible. That's well known and it's a very well known 
uh, gap for the European economy. What is very interesting is uh, to see the opening gap in, uh, also in uh, machinery and equipment investment, uh, particularly starting from the crisis, uh, crisis years. So that is, uh, that is a signal of uh, another uh, delay in uh, the European economy in terming, uh, in terms of uh, also adapting to new technologies, etc. We'll discuss it uh, going uh, um, more uh, going forward. But what we see is really the combination of the two gaps in terms of uh, intangible, but uh, the ending up of an additional gap in terms of uh, machinery and equipment investment versus uh, the EU. On the second uh, graph, uh, we start looking uh, with our survey data. We look at uh, the composition of investment for European U.S. firms in different sectors, and it merged quite, quite clearly the rule, the limited rule of investment in intangible at the European level, both in manufacturing and in the service sector. And uh, through our survey, we can uh, distinguish uh, between the different uh, form of intangible. And uh, uh, what we see is uh, really the, the gap is not only related to the R&D part, but I particularly think like uh, um, organizational uh, change at the company level, uh, the software that are particularly important in a digital transformation phase. And uh, in the report, we talk a lot about uh, complementarities between the different forms of intangible complementarities between tangible and, in, and uh, intangible investment as extremely important in periods of uh, technological transformation like the ones uh, that we are uh, living. So this uh, is uh, already showing uh, some gaps uh, that is opening uh, quite clearly between uh, the EU and the US. The second source of uh, concern that we have in the European economy is a council where we look at uh, innovation uh, activities and uh, and the global leaders and the role of Europe in generating these global these leaders in innovation and global leaders. We have two different messages, very much complementary, coming from coming out. In the first graph, we basically use our survey data and we distinguish firms in various groups using this methodology. So if what firm is investing in R&D and is adopting an innovation, an innovation can be product process innovation, then we would, would, would call it active innovator. If a firm is not investing in R&D but is adopting innovation, it would be called adopting. If a firm is not investing in R&D and not adopting innovation, it would be called basic. What we see is a U and US young adult firms where old are more than 10 years. What you see is that Europe has a lot of basic firms. So no R&D, no innovation. It has also a lot of adopting firms. It has a much less, both in the, in the young and in the old, of active innovators. I do this and I, among the active innovators, I had a special group that had the leading innovators. So they invest in R&D and they adopt innovation that is new to the world. So they are really the new leading innovators. So they have um, innovation new to the world. And here what you see is that... It, 
Can you give an example of what you mean by that? It's a, it's a something that is a not, a, it's a, I don't know, a technology, that, it's a product that you think is not something that you are taking uh, technology existing, etc. It's something that is a, a completely innovative product. Yeah. Yeah. That you would have it about the manufacturing services, yeah. so it can be many different things. And uh, what you see is uh, really the difference is uh, that where uh, Europe is really lagging behind the US would be among the younger firms. So for us, it's a lot of uh, Europe lagging behind in terms of innovation capacities, but particularly among generating these young leading innovators. If we look at the second graph, is a, is a, a reflection or a consequence, if you want, of the inability of creating this young leading innovation is also reflected in, in Europe having less of what we can call new global leaders. Here we look at data of the 2,500 R&D global spenders. You look at the, the green and the orange bars are the percentage of, uh, of global leaders that come from different regions. And here we see Europe relatively stable in terms of numbers. But what is really interesting is the new firms, new to the club, we call them. So the capacity of different regions of creating firms that are part of these top 2,500 R&D global spenders. And here you see that Europe is not so strong in creating this new global leader. And who is really picking up? It's China. So it's a really indication of in this innovation phase, Europe is, is losing compared to others on the young side, but also on the global leaders. Finance, again, still talking about the, um, the weakness of the economy. Uh, one of the weaknesses that we highlight, and uh, we work a lot in the report, is uh, a too much bank-based financial sector that is uh, not capable of uh, supporting innovation. Here, uh, I just present one single graph, but uh, there is uh, much more in the report uh, discussing about it. What we show is uh, we look at uh, innovating and in non-innovating firms, and we compare them for a number of variables. If uh, we start looking uh, from uh, your... You're right. What you see is that innovative companies are much more financially constrained than non-innovative one, and they also are dissatisfied. It's another question that we have in our questionnaire. Uh, they are dissatisfied about the collateral requirement, and that's quite normal because if you invest in in uh, intangible, you cannot probably collateralize, etc. So th these firms are much more financially constrained. But if you look at the other variable, both the firm characteristic and financial health of the firms, actually these firms are good. So it's really a matter of the financial sector that is incapable of dealing with innovative firm and uh, the reason it's really being uh, very much uh, bank-based and uh, based on uh, collateral in the lending uh, process. We come to another 
weakness, an important weakness of the European market today, and that's uh, uh, skills, related to skills. In our survey, we ask firms what are the main impediments to investment, and 77% of firms consider lack of skills the, uh, the unimpediment to investment. This is uh, the strongest impediment in a list of uh, 10 impediments, and is uh, consistently uh, the, the first one uh, highlighted by European firms. It's very strong in uh, other Europe and in cohesion, so Central Eastern Europe is a little bit less in the periphery. The cycle is uh, actually showing the recovery in the labor market is, is, uh, is uh, providing, uh, the slower recovery in the labor market is uh, providing uh, um, some buffers, but I think it's a very big issue, not only in uh, core, but uh, in cohesion is uh, really something where the outward migration from the region is creating a very strong tension in the labor market. And when we look at which firms are complaining for skills, again, I use the same category that I had before in terms of innovation of firms. You see that the more active innovators are actually the ones that are complaining more in terms of skills. So the skill issue can be something that generates issues inside Europe for firm investment on the one side, and is likely to be one of the strongest constraints, particularly for the, for the more innovating firms. So it's likely to be something that can, can further constrain the capacity of innovating of, of, um, of Europe. Uh, we also look in the report about uh, training activities, uh, education trainings, uh, and uh, we think there is much more, and I will come back in the policy conclusion, much more that can be done in order to, 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 to tackle the, the, the skill issues at the European level. Still talking about weaknesses, and then I will move, <laughs> but still talking about weakness, we also look at infrastructure investment. We think about enabling infrastructure is crucial. We really come up looking at um, we don't, uh, we don't buy the story that uh, there is not infrastructure because uh, uh, there is a saturation effect. I think uh, we have uh, a number of evidence that actually there is not a saturation effect, but the dynamic of infrastructure and infrastructure investment still has to, uh, is 25% below the pre-crisis period. And uh, there is a lot happening in the infrastructure sector that explain very low investment activities going on. Um, on the one side, the public sector has been uh, retrenching, and it's uh, very much related to a shift in government preferences in terms of uh, expenditures, where uh, there has been a strong increase, if you want, in the current expenditure side, with a very strong retrench on the capital expenditure side. It has been a political decision, sometimes also independent from the actual fiscal stance of countries. It's now being corrected. And in 2017-18, we start to think of some of the countries that put more attention to the capital expenditure part. But I think this is a, the retrenchment of the government sector has had a very important implication. And that a very important implication because retrenching the government sector, what really lacks is a lot of... Um, 
capacity to generate projects. So without the government having the initiating capacity, you actually have very few projects coming into the market, a good project, and you really need governance and technical capacity to have the, 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 the infrastructure sector to, the, to restart. Almost at the end, we couldn't finish in the weakness without talking business regulatory environment and, and labor market regulation. I think we have from the survey a lot of indication that this thing is still matter. Nobody wants to talk anymore about, uh, about uh, structural reform, but we still think that, that there is a lot to do in this direction. And actually, the firms are telling us that 66, more than 60% of firms are telling that a business regulation or labor market regulation is an issue. We also were looking at, uh, we have a nice analysis that looks at region with high quality institution and what we find is that firms that operate in regions with high quality institution are three times more likely to innovate and um, nine times more likely to introduce a patent than firms that are living in uh, regions with uh, lower quality institutions. So we really think that uh, there is, uh, again, institution matter and it matter also for the innovation capacity of, uh, uh, of uh, firms. With all this weakness, uh, I go to the next step and I say, why all this weakness? Most of those we know them from years, why are they particularly dangerous now? And why we think there is a cost of inaction that is so much important today? And here we, I switched to something that we did this year. We did a special module of our survey that looks at digitalization of firms. So we ask firms what they are doing in terms of digitalization. And we compare European firms with US firms, and we have firms in manufacturing and service sector. So the first thing is we ask them if they have been adopting digital technology, and we have a classification of four different kinds of digital technology for manufacturing and services. And we ask them if they adopt them partially or fully. What you see is uh, that there is a, a similar level of adoption, if you want, uh, in uh, um, Europe and US in the manufacturing sector. There is a much, there is a, a gap in terms of adoption in the EU versus the US in the service sector. But if you go more granular and you look at the kind of technologies, you see a gap for Europe in adopting, particularly in the technology that are the Internet of Things, big data. Those are the real disruptive technology of the future. Those that will not influence only one sector, but will influence the overall economy and all sector going forward. So being late in this kind of technology, particularly in this more advanced one, is going to be a, a big risk for Europe. We look at the cost of delayed adoption. What I present here is the simplest thing that we could show. We ask firms, if you had not adopted the digital technology, what would be the impact on your sales, and you see uh, more than 50% of firms telling us uh, our sales would have been lower and not adopting. So the firm themselves is uh, making a causality in terms of uh, 
um, of, uh, of the link between uh, digitalization and sales. We also do some more detailed analysis. We look at cost in terms of non-digitalizing, in terms of productivity, investment, innovation. We find out actually that the firms that are digitalizing are more productive, they invest more, they are more innovative, they invest more in, in, in uh, intangible, they are better in everything. They also have higher markups. And that's an important point because it brings the idea that what I was saying before, we have a cost of inaction, cost of non-digitalizing, and that's what I showed before, but this cost of non-digitalizing may become a long-lasting cost and may become something that will penalize Europe going forward for the long term. And the reason is coming from this graph that is a little bit complicated, so we start from uh, dividing firms between digital, fully digital, and non-digital or non-fully digital. And uh, in the two groups, uh, we di divide by quantiles, looking at the total factor productivity of the firm. So the top quantiles are more productive than, uh, than uh, the others. And then we ask to the firms if they think that digitalization, generally digitalization in the market, will increase or decrease competition. What you see is that there is one group in all of those that think that further digitalization will not increase competition. And those are the we call them at the top of the top. They are the most efficient and the fully digital firms. Those are firms that already have higher margins today, higher markup today, and they think that they are protected because they are already the top of the top and competition will not affect them. It's an indication of this winner takes all that gives us an idea that we may have issues for Europe because of the, 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 the delay that we see today, because of the um, cost of inaction and the permanent cost of inactions. With all of this, uh, I try to move uh, on a positive agenda. So we need to retool Europe, what we need to do for retooling Europe. Retooling Europe, I think we, we try to look at a different factors. So we need to have a lot of investment going in areas like innovation, digitalization, skill, scaling up of firms, uh, energy transition, we put it even if I didn't talk much, but we have a, one chapter also looking at this, and strategic infrastructure. We need investment to go there. There may be national focus and national policies going in this direction. We still think, uh, and, uh, and I think Mario would be in agreement with that, we still think that we need, uh, we need to go behind the national bias in terms of reallocating national saving toward the most productive use. And this can go through the, the private sector, capital market union, banking union, on the other side, also through a EU instrument, and let's say that the EU budget, obviously, the EIB can play a role. But we think there is much more to do in terms of uh, truly reallocation of saving at the European level, extra saving at the European level, toward a number of, uh, uh, of critical areas of investment um, going behind the national bias. 
Retooling Europe also calls, uh, and these are uh, a few of the things I was mentioning before, a more flat, dynamic, innovative business environment, improve regulatory conditions for firms grow and market entry and exit, and uh, uh, address the EU equity gap and the growth stage trap for firms, both on the demand and the supply side and uh, commit to market efficiency. And I think here we really think that a part of the delay in digitalization on the service sector is related to the inefficiency in the single market for services that we are talking since many years at the European level. And the size of the market is crucial when you talk about the digitalization. So having a, a segmented service sector market at the European level is likely to, play, pay, to be a major constraint for service sector firms. So we think much more has to be done in terms of policies in this direction. And then uh, work on creating the condition for a true uh, European digital market that is uh, actually being done uh, um, at, uh, at the Commission level. Then uh, we look at uh, a couple of uh, additional points uh, to lead the European economy also um, implies working on uh, uh, infrastructure and innovation. And here we focus on two different things. On the one side, on the infrastructure side, we think it's not only a matter of finance that is missing. We think there is a lot in terms of governance and technical capacity in generating process, projects that has to be complemented with finance. But we think the governance and technical capacity are equally important for really rebuilding infrastructure activity going forward. And then uh, on uh, intangible adoption of new technology, here uh, we look at uh, the system of incentive for uh, uh, intangible uh, that is uh, present at the moment in Europe. It's mostly, not only in Europe, it's mostly targeting R&D only. And we think that uh, there is much more than R&D that is important if you want uh, digital technology to go on and the complementarity among a different form of intangibles would require a wider definition of what should be the policy target. And then the issue of skills. And I think there is much more to do at the European level in the moment in which we have an integrated free mobility of people at the European level. We have 99% of expenditure of, at, uh, uh, on education that is uh, at the national level and 1% that is at European level. Maybe there should be much more coordination for something where we have, uh, where we have uh, a European issues and we don't have uh, European instruments to address uh, uh, the point. And this would be particularly important, and that's the last uh, slide that I have, because uh, we think that there are a number of things that are happening in any case, and Europe will have to deal with it. We have the polarization on the labor market. It's already visible. Digitalization is already having an effect on the European job market and creating this polarization. We have firms with jobs at risk of automation, etc. This is happening, whatever other policy Europe is doing. Policies like the one I was mentioning before, policies in terms of skills, uh, they have the opportunity of, of addressing an issue that is happening even if Europe tries to do nothing, it will happen because the technological change is happening. And if you have a policies, try to address those things. You can uh, 
through those policies uh, deal with uh, the economic issues, uh, but also with uh, the social issues uh, that we see more and more uh, coming up, uh, uh, coming up uh, and uh, affecting uh, our uh, society. And the same happens uh, for uh, the climate uh, part. So the message that we are trying to put forward is. Uh, it's uh, the cost of inaction for Europe is really too high at the moment. We have to go forward through to our policies for retooling Europe, and we have to do it in a socially and environmental sustainable way. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Deborah. This was a very comprehensive uh, presentation of. Uh, of your study with very uh, interesting and clear messages on, on what we learn from it. Lots of things that stand out. Um, the issue of, uh, of skills is, is, is one element I think that really stands out and perhaps uh, Roman can tell us a little bit about this. But I was also interesting about the 66% of firms that are that are telling us that there is uh, business regulation. Perhaps uh, Mario can address this. <laughs> if on the issue of how to deregulate, which is of course uh, uh, you know, following the financial crisis, we went in one direction. Have we gone too far? I think that's. Uh, there's a lot of other issues that uh, perhaps we can come back to in uh, in the discussion. But perhaps we could give the floor first to our to our uh, panelists. Uh, Roman, first for maybe ten minutes, and then uh, Mario. And then we can we can come back to uh, to, the, to more questions. Thank you, Maria. Very good. Um, I have a couple of slides to kind of animate uh, the visuals during the, the presentation, but let me just uh, basically try to uh, try to try to launch the discussion by saying the, that the report uh, for us is an excellent report that has a lot of sound analysis, so it has a value per se in all the analytics that it carries to better understand the investment trends and the investment patterns and finance uh, issues. But also it provides a number of very interesting policy pointers, and Maria was, was clearly referring to skills and regulation, but there are also other very interesting issues which you're pointing at, such as competition uh, policy and others. But we also think that there is a wealth of data that you have pulled together in order to make the report available, and that is this, this 12,500 firms that you have interviewed, provide us with a really rich data set that I think that we can really exploit uh, carefully if we want to look at the issue of intangibles in Europe using microdata. So that is also, let's say, something that is underpinning your report, but we consider that is a very important element. Now, if I would have to choose three takes, takeaways from your report that would be kind of closer to my heart, I would say that one of them that comes out very neatly for me is that the EU firms are kind of waking up to the digitalization challenge, but they are still not yet there, notably in terms of adoption of digital and in services sector in particular. You have referred to, uh, let's say, the US firms having much more of a focus on big data to open up uh, new markets. You, you identify this kind of cost of inaction that uh, is particularly hitting Europe versus United States in that kind of uh, in that kind of area. So the adoption of, of digital is certainly one of the issues that, uh, that I take with me. Another one is basically that uh, we see that the EU is kind of losing ground on the necessary innovation to scale up uh, new technological leaders. You were also referring to data on the fact that Europe has much more or much less rather entrance into the market. 8% of EU firms can be considered under your definition of leading innovators versus 16% in the, in the US. 
So it kind of shows that we have a gap there. And the third issue is indeed the skills. I think that uh, in relation to skills, they, they are a necessary precondition for uh, digital creation and digital uptake. And we see from your survey that eight out of 10 firms are actually saying that the availability of skills is a limiting factor for their investments. So I think that this is something where we need to keep an eye. And what surprised me even more is that if you look at fast-growing innovative firms in your subset of firms, then actually skills is really a very, very strong limiting factor. So I think that this, these are things that we need to take into account. So in line with, uh, let's say, with what you were saying, we publish every two years uh, a report which is called Science, Research and Innovation Performance of, uh, of the EU. And that is a report where we focus on three, uh, well, we, we, focus, we basically try to look at the EU performance in terms of innovation and compare that with, the, uh, with third partner countries and see what are the drivers and the obstacles to innovation uh, performance of the EU. And in the last uh, report which we issued this year, we looked notably at the three issues which you have on the slide, which is the issue of increasing uh, complexity of the innovation phenomenon which we can trace back to three things. Mostly the first one is that the digital technologies are actually um, appearing more and more at the convergence of the physical, the digital, and even the biological world. So if you look, for example, at the CRISPR technology, to take an example, which is right now pretty much on the press, then you see that it is at the intersection of medicine, uh, biotech, agriculture, digital, etc. We also see that firms have a difficulty in using off-the-shelf technologies in order to kind of back their innovations and they need to look at this convergence between the different technologies in order to make it out there. And finally we have we see also that there is a move towards deeper tech uh, innovations kind of more linked to the fundamental science uh, that is happening you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the science systems. So this is increasing the complexity of the overall uh, innovation dynamics. And then, basically, if we match this with all the network effects that are emerging from the digitalization process, then we see actually that this is hindering the diffusion of innovation and is leading to a concentration of innovation in a number of uh, superstar firms. You were talking about winner-takes-all strategies and all of that. And all of this is kind of wrapped by a nice uh, package of really fast-changing innovation dynamics uh, where you see entire sectors such as retail being redefined, uh, etc. So, um, uh, from our kind of analysis, which I think matches pretty well what you were uh, what you were telling us, and this is probably why also we have a tradition of cooperating in your report and in our report and in a cross fertilization matter. We see that digitalization is going to bring enormous opportunities uh, for Europe, but it's also going to bring a lot of risks and a lot of costs, and these costs are going to be materializing pretty much more on the short and medium term. So the transition towards the digital economy is not going to be a friction-free transition. And the question is how can we manage that transition and how can we use public policy, uh, not only, let's say, uh, for innovation, but in the broader policy mix to ensure that this transition is indeed sustainable, as you were uh, saying when you were talking about the retooling of the, of the, of the policy area. So, I mean, if, if this is just a slide, you know, I mean, on the example, on one of the examples, this is about changing innovation dynamics and the impact of innovation diffusion across um, 
across uh, firms. So here we have some data from uh, recent studies uh, by the OECD. We're working very closely to the OECD on, on the analysis of productivity gains at the micro level, where we see that there is basically a big fat tail of firms that are not improving their productivity despite these huge opportunities of the emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, machine learning, etc. So we see the frontier firms performing, uh, and this is the top percent of the firms performing uh, at 30 percent uh, productivity, while we see, you know, this big fat tail of other laggards, you know, which represents the 95 percent of the other firms really being behind. So for us, you know, I mean, this is linked to innovation diffusion, and this is really a key issue. And the last uh, kind of uh, illustrating slide that I have is this one here, which comes from a very recent study by Boston Consulting Group and MIT Sloan. Well, if you look at the uh, left uh, bottom quadrant, there you see a lot of sectors where artificial intelligence is currently having little to moderate impact on the way that these sectors are operating. However, if you look at the predictions that uh, uh, these guys make, about where we will be in five years' time, we see that the effect is going to be massive on many of those sectors, and mostly these are knowledge-intensive sectors, but there are also other sectors which are not knowledge-intensive. And this kind of brings me to the, um, to the statement that indeed, you know, in the, uh, let's say the disparities across uh, population or the effects of digitalization across population, across sectors, across regions, is also going to be, to a very large extent, modulated by the impact of emerging technologies. So, um, there are two areas uh, which you have highlighted in your report where we think as well you know, that there needs to be action uh, from the policy angle, and this is certainly linked to the need for a stronger uh, diffusion of innovation. And the second area for us would be indeed the need to quickly be able to scale up uh, breakthrough innovations. So we concur with your report on the need that there is a very high cost of inaction and that in order to overcome uh, this we need to do two things. The first one is to invest in intangible assets and not just using public uh, investment but also creating the conditions for business investment to be able to reach there looking particularly at the complementarities between the different intangible assets. So we agree it is not all about R&D. R&D is very important, of course, but we also need to look at skills, ICT, economic competences, etc. And also we should get away a little bit from the mantra of like uh, the focus should be uh, IT infrastructures and uh, that's it, you know I mean? I think we also think that IT infrastructure is a very important element in all of this, but there should be a broader based kind of approach towards uh, investing in intangible assets and how these technologies are going to be used, you know, I mean, it's certainly you know, I mean, one of the aspects that we should keep an eye on. The second big block, which is the better diffusion of innovation, I think that there, evidently, completion of the single market, uh, digital uh, single market, capital markets union, will also help, you know, I mean, for this diffusion of innovation. But we need at the same time to consider the effects of digital on markets and sectors and how this is affecting competition and is affecting innovation. And of course, we need to keep a focus on skills. So to, to end up uh, my kind of discussion, I would say that we need to adjust our public policy tools. We fully agree with you on that. We cannot have public policy tools to support innovation that are basically dating to a few years back when the nature of innovation dynamics is going a completely different way with this concentration effects, the speed and the complexity of the innovation process. So we believe that we don't only need fresh money to be put into the system, and that is also quite important. So that's why 
I think our Horizon Europe program will move to 100 billion euros from an 80 billion stance. So I think that that's quite clear uh, to us that should be done. But also we need a number of uh, changes in how we are investing in the quality and the efficiency of those investments, which just to quote three examples, we have uh, the European Innovation Council, which is now out there, which will, or is targeting, let's say, the filling of this gap in terms of uh, fostering the breakthrough innovations that can really create new markets. We have also a number of research and innovation missions in Horizon Europe, which sets some directionality in investment towards issues which you have mentioned, such as climate change and, and others. And we also, for me, certainly need uh, better regulatory frameworks that are actually not hindering innovation, are fostering it. And I understand that Mario's going to touch upon those, so I don't get uh, pretty much into this. So for us, it's really an excellent report a wealth of quantitative data that is supporting it, and messages that are pretty much aligned with our own analysis. So, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Roman. That's very, very useful. Um, Deborah, do you mind if we just take Mario's uh, comments first, and then perhaps we can, we can collect all of them and come back to the discussion? Mario. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. <coughs> I must confess this is one of those reports that one awaits every year, but is daunted by the dimension. It's 400 pages. So when you told me come and discuss, I was very happy because one thing is to read it dry in your office and the other one is to have a discussion with you on that. So it's very clear that uh, Europe, and in particular this commission, I mean, moved seriously on the issue of, uh, of investment. I mean, three weeks in the job, the Juncker Commission proposed the Juncker Plan. The Juncker Plan is nothing else than leverage the without state money, but with private money. So this means putting together uh, the ability to, 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 to search for the good uh, investment, but also the financing condition and the regulatory condition or conditions on, one, on which you want me to, to, to bet my career, and I will do it in a, <laughs> in a clever way. <laughs> um, now, uh, let me take, uh, after having read the report and, uh, and, listened to, uh, and listened to Deborah, I have three main areas on which I would like to, to talk. One... <laughs> okay. Okay. Now it is. I don't start again. I assume I was. Uh, I assume you heard me enough. No. Should I start again? No. 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 Okay. I'm okay. So the three points I bring home are the following. One is digitalization, and I will make in comments similar to the one of Ramon. The other is on the financing condition, where I think the, the report was, um, was good, if anything, maybe a bit too gentle. And third is on the regulatory condition, in particular on what to do. Digitalization. I mean, what I take home from the report, and I completely concur, is that digitalization is not a matter of doing it or not doing it, it's doing it at the right speed because everybody else does it. So you need to have the speed that, that the others have. And in order to do that, you have a sort of, you have complementarities with at least three or four factors which, uh, uh, which, which help you. One is very obvious what, uh, what Deborah herself said. Uh, we all talk about investing in intangible, but obviously you have a complementarity with tangible. I mean, that's, that's very clear. That's very clear first aspect. Uh, you have a complementarity with skills. I think if I have to choose one graph from the many that Deborah showed, is the one where in terms of new leaders, 
Europe passed from being the second out of five to be the fourth out of five in a matter of 10 years. That is quite frightening uh, that uh, we are not uh, able to keep, uh, to keep the pass. I mean, still the pace, sorry, to keep the pace of the others. We are still, of course, able to create new leaders, but that's not the point. We need to be able to create new leaders at the same, at the same pace as the other. And the link here with the, with the skills and the ability of the skills is very obvious. There is also in digitalization an obvious link with market conditions. Deborah didn't have enough time, but I think the report dwells well enough. I think this helps, and it's interesting because there you really see the aspect of competition policy. Competition policy able to bring goods at the uh, services in this case, at the appropriate price, able to have uh, some sort of loi de CE effect on the supply side and producing, uh, and producing the necessary skills uh, which, uh, which help. Overall, I would say digitalization, if you want, is very much at the core of uh, the type of quality growth that uh, we are trying to pursue, which is the, the sustainable growth, the ESG, because, I mean, the, for example, take the S component, social component there. If you have a good social component, there is much easier to get the skills uh, that you need for the, for the digitalization. The governance as well, you touch very little, but it's clear that a good governance is essentially for a good ability to invest. So that's on the first point, I would say, probably I'm very much in line with, uh, with both Deborah and, and Ramon. On the second issue, which are the financing conditions, one point that is said very gentle in the, in the report is that the type of financing conditions we have been seeing in the last uh, uh, seven years we will never see them again. I mean, I think that's, that's the issue. I mean, uh, sorry for having been much less subtle than the report it is, but that's the point. Uh, we have to try to uh, put ourselves in the frame of mind whereby the financing conditions may change. There is an element that Deborah is, uh, and the report itself is, uh, is, uh, is highlighted a number of times, which is the bank-based financing condition. Clearly, in the moment you have bank-based financing condition, crisis has proven that your ability to resist to shocks is, uh, is, much, uh, is much lower. Of course, your competitive conditions are much lower. And even I liked very much the reference to, to the collateral, to the use of collateral. You can imagine a world of intangible, uh, the, the use of collateral. Now, markets does not use much collateral. And that's the passage to market. There is a point there uh, in, in the Capital Markets Union which is uh, when you move, uh, when you go to capital markets union, when you go to use more markets, not necessarily this means uh, changing the financing structure of, uh, of the firms. So not necessarily this means uh, less debt and more equity. If it does, good. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't, because in many cases it's very difficult that it does, because simply uh, many companies may be simply too small and so on and on, even if it doesn't, the passage away from bank toward the markets is still positive, right? Without even evoking uh, Modigliani-Miller and the, 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 the fact that debt on the equity composition does not matter, which is, as we all know, very good to win a Nobel Prize, but maybe less good to, <laughs> to do this. But apart from that, I mean, the point I want to make is that the Capital Markets Union um, and the, the way it does in moving away anyhow from bank-based, even if it does not change the, uh, the balance sheet side of the companies, still makes a positive development because it still gives a, a greater ability to, 
uh, gives a greater ability to to, with, to withstand shocks and uh, and so on and on. So I think this perspective, maybe if there is one thing that I would add in the excellent report, is exactly this perspective. The one to say the financing condition we have seen in the last, uh, let's say, seven to eight years, uh, we are not likely to see them in the future. Now, I don't make any forecast what we will be seeing, of course, but I think that is an aspect that uh, for investment, for long term, and so on and on, is quite, uh, is quite crucial. And then my third and, uh, and last point is on, on what you want me, me to talk about, which is the regulatory conditions. Yes, indeed. I mean, that's, it's very clear. I mean, the, the crisis uh, we made, uh, we made a, an obvious, uh, uh, an obvious uh, uh, progress in uh, reducing risks in the in the economy by increasing rules. I mean, that was uh, nothing else than we than we had to do. By the way, remember uh, rule number one in economics: uh, less risk, less return. So it's not abnormal that we have had uh, some reduced uh, some reduced return. But I think. It's. I feel no ashamed of saying yes. We have increased the number of of rules. Now the question that you posed, Maria, is have we gone have we gone too far? I think for that question we need to respond in a in a in a very scientific way, and that's what the Commission tried to do. In 2015, uh, we launched a call for evidence, and we asked uh, to everybody who wanted to respond. Uh, do you think we went too far in the in the regulation? And the, the, main, uh, uh, the main reply was uh, that uh, we have gone, in particular, too far in the reporting requirements. So it's very clear that the, the reporting requirements have been one of those areas where most of the firms, most of the companies have suffered. In particular, uh, there was a, a, a perceived or, or a true or a real uh, lack of uh, proportionality and uh, reporting requirements being similar for extremely different companies. On, on that and on the basis of that, we went ahead with the, with the fitness check, uh, which is exactly an exercise on, on, corporate, uh, on corporate reporting. Now, mind you that a number of companies also told us, however, that the reporting requirement have helped them to see better what they are, to reach some, uh, some cost consciousness or some cost competitiveness. Very clearly, for example, this year, as you know, is the first year, although everybody talks about that, but it's the very first year that formally you have the, the directive on uh, non-financial reporting. And uh, what we hear is that a number of uh, companies who are not subject to that directive, because for the time being it's only for the listed companies and the big companies, and a number of companies who are not subject to that directive are thinking of, uh, uh, of going into that direction, and they've even made noise in that favor because they see the benefit of that. So once again, here I think uh, it's, it's definitely correct to look at the uh, issue of whether in some areas uh, for the all good intended uh, and obvious reasons, of course, we may have gone too far. And, uh, and yeah, there may, be, there may be some scope for, uh, for looking at that. Incidentally, we did uh, very recently a, a stock taking of that at a, at a, at a big conference uh, down the road uh, here in, uh, in Charlemagne. Now, but the point, and, and, and this is really the point I want to, uh, to foster, is that when you try to do policy making, I think if you... If you think a moment, what did allow Europe to come out of one of the biggest crises? I mean, my personal view, this is truly personal view of, of an economist, if you want, not even 
not even the commission view. My personal view is that we were particularly good in one thing, which is taking a comprehensive and holistic approach and moving the three levers that we could move, the monetary, the fiscal, and the regulatory level at the same time. So that is, I believe, what has helped Europe to come out of the, of the crisis, the simultaneous use of the three things, the proposal of the banking union at the same moment of the whatever it takes, with the strengthening of the fiscal rule, with the Juncker, with the Juncker plan coming shortly after. So I believe has been the contemporaneous use of all those, uh, of all those, uh, of all those factors, which you can read very well in the, in the report, because when you read the last slide, the last uh, pages of the report about the retooling, the retooling chapter, I think you make a very similar point to that. In the retooling chapter, you basically say, we need to put together and to exploit or extract the synergies that come from, uh, for example, the EU budget, the EIB activities, and the capital markets union. Again, take the example of the Juncker plan. The Juncker plan is leveraged demand policy. If you don't have a capital markets union that works, you can forget about that because it's not putting money. So uh, the regulatory conditions, uh, yeah, okay, there may be something to look, but I think one thing that we should not lose is the virtue of having done all those things together. And now, and we passed from having a big economic problem to having a well-identified issue, because that's the good thing of the report, it's 400 pages, but at the end of it, you do understand what is the purpose of all the 400 pages, is to get to the point you want. And the identification of that, I think, is, uh, is very clear. And if we address that issue in the same comprehensive way, um, I think we are on the, on the good track. Thank you. If you wanted to respond to a number of issues, and if you allow me, I would like to add uh, maybe a couple of things, just picking up also from what our discussions have said, uh, and, and on your report. I mean, I'd like to go back to this issue of skills, because I, I think it's so prominent on, on, your, on your report, and I think everybody has mentioned it. And let's face it, I mean, it is the one, the one problem to solve if you're interested in the future, and I really worry about how well we prepare for something like this. Uh, and, you know, we need to tackle it both with education, so you start at the age of three, uh, as well as the lifelong learning agenda that is about the skills that, you know, you, the, the life, you're no longer going to have jobs for life. Uh, so, you know, the, the ability to retrain and retrain as you move from one job to the next is going to be pivotal to this. And I worry how much actually in Europe we have put in place the measures that are required, coordinated or uncoordinated, to actually provide for the skills of the future. And by the way, we have to do it now, if not uh, in the past to meet the challenges that you're describing. So that's actually is my, my, my first point. Uh, the second point is on, on the financing conditions, and I, I think I, I like to, uh, to sort of pick on, on what Mario said about the financing conditions. Of course, you know, they, are, they have never been as good as uh, they are today and probably in the future. Uh, uh, they will change, but I think the, the evidence is that either this is going to be slow or we are actually looking at an environment where the financial conditions are not going to be what they were in the 80s or in the 90s. Um, but I, I actually wanted to sort of just throw one argument in the conversation just for the sake of completeness. And, and uh, uh, in particular, if you're interested in investment, low interest rates cheap though investment, make investment, at the same time they distort something which is very important in, in the context of investment, that is the signaling part. Um, because the price of investment, it reflects riskiness, underlying riskiness. And if you have very low interest rates for very long and, and 
now and in the future, you're actually eliminating this part of the interest rate. And who's going to take, who's going to do that? Who's going to shift through the various types of investments available and therefore concentrate on those that are uh, that are uh, worth uh, pursuing? So, uh, you know, I would welcome an increase in the interest rates even though it will distort this, the, the, the aspect of cheap uh, money, because it would provide uh, quickness in taking up projects uh, on their on their merits. Um, so I think it's important not to underestimate sort of the signaling device of, uh, you know, which comes back to my fact that if they're going to be low for long, actually maybe that's not that good. Actually, it compensates a little bit the argument that uh, that you're saying. And then the last thing on the regulation: Have we gone too far? This is, of course, the one thousand dollar question to ask for, for for you. But I mean, that's not a that's uh, that's not an easy one to uh, uh, to answer. I, I mean, I don't know what your your views are. There is no doubt that uh, events have merited us to go in this direction of uh, regulation and perhaps, you know, increasing the type 2 error in favor of type 1, you know, because that's the appetite. Uh, but another dimension that I'd like to add here is the fact that the, the way that regulation inevitably happens deals with risks of the past. You see, I mean, you know, you're, you're correcting for mistakes that we have done in the past, for imbalances that were built in the past. Uh, if you're following this discussion on the GDP at risk, that this part of the discussion is very clear that we have eliminated all those factors that contributed to the imbalances of the past, but they don't address the risks that you are talking about, the digitization, the AI, global trade wars. So these are risks that are can, we couldn't have regulated for as a response to the crisis. Um, and therefore, what we are left with is if we are all over-regulating, we are unnecessarily over-regulating, right? So I'm saying that there's a good case to go back and deregulate what we shouldn't have regulated in the first place, but perhaps concentrate on how we need to regulate in an anticipatory manner, given risks that, uh, to the extent that we can identify the risks of the future, because, I mean, you know, one thing about the future is that it's unknown, right? Um, and, and, you know, the issue of regulation, I think, is going back and saying, did we go that far in terms of what we addressed in the past, and maybe too little in terms of what we think will happen in the uh, but of course, this is a, the balance of this is not an easy thing to address. Um, but it's really worth thinking not only backwards but also forwards, as as you describe in the way that you did, Deborah, the risks uh, uh, of the future. But with that, perhaps I will let you uh, uh, respond to uh, the comments, and then we'll take also questions from the floor. Okay, so I, I had uh, so thank you very much. I think a lot of uh, sure. a lot of interesting point, and uh, I'm happy that uh, that uh, we share a lot of the thinking behind us. So that's uh, that's a good thing, and it's a very good thing because uh, we are actually with uh, two of them we are sister institutions. So <laughs> it's okay. it's good that we have a, a similar understanding and um, and uh, and. Uh, I, t I tackle a few of the points that you were mentioning. I think I started from the skills one, because I think the skills is really something that we have started working on, and it's something where we definitely we continue working going forward. I was mentioning a couple of things, but I was already mentioning on the one side the point we are still debating very much also in the team, and uh, I have a strong point. Uh, others are telling me you are too strong on that. Pedro is telling me I'm too strong on that. Uh, on the fact of uh, um, having an integrated labor market and having uh, countries uh, in Europe, uh, like uh, I was recently visiting Bulgaria. In Bulgaria, I think 99% uh, of firms tell us that we have an issue in terms of skills. 
And they have a real issue in skills in the sense that they don't have people. The outward migration is so strong. The companies that in the past have been delocalizing there are now fully automat automatizing. Because, uh, and the reason for automatization is really because they cannot find the people. So they cannot find workers at every level of skills, also for the low level of skills. And to me, it's true that uh, that uh, labor mobility is good uh, and it's uh, it has also positive effect back on the on the economy. If you have people going out, you have the positive reflows, etc. We all know all the economic theory behind, but I think that uh, creating a market in which uh, you have a distorting incentive. One is uh, the complete the free migration and uh, movement of people. On the other side, you have uh, education that is uh, paid at the national level. I think in Europe, we have a lot of uh, public offered education. And what will be the in incentive for a country like Bulgaria to continue to pay good free education if the people are always going out? Mm -hmm. I think there are a number of things. I don't know what is the answer, but uh, there are a number of things that are not well taught in terms of uh, allowing uh, the free mobility on the one side, uh, but uh, not uh, dealing uh, with the consequences that uh, it has in terms of incentive for education, for the labor market, etc. I think, uh, I don't know what is the solution. I think uh, there needs uh, to be more coordination at uh, the European level. In a moment in which uh, we see issues uh, in the labor market and we see Particularly in Central Eastern Europe, we see a massive out for outward migration from there. And there is, a, there is a something to be thought about on that point of view. And then on uh, training, I think, uh, I think again, uh, when, we were, when I was talking about uh, incentive, uh, incentive for uh, all kinds of intangible, I think uh, there is a strong case for thinking at incentive in terms of training also on the public se sector point of view. We are in a situation in which some countries have a lot of public sector finance training, which qualitatively, depending on countries, there are quality issues in many cases. I think France made a big case on the quality issue of the, 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 the training, actually the, the mandatory training system, etc. So there are issues in terms of what is currently being done in terms of training. I think there could be some rethinking of creating incentive, maybe less mandatory thing, but more incentivizing, and having training that is really well taught in terms of creating the right skill, creating the right the right incentive for 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 the firms. So, in terms of skills, uh, I think there is a lot to, still to study, a lot to do, but I think uh, the two points I would like to make is uh, think about uh, inc incentivizing also training as part of policies and the other side, uh, more coordination at the European level. Other points, uh, you mentioned uh, the issue of regulation. There is another puzzle that we just start tackling in the report, and it's something that I think people will have to think about more in the future. Um, when we talk about uh, big data, I think at the European level, we have been regulating very much the protection of personal data side, but the side of protection of personal data. But the question mark is, uh, 
um, digitalization, the big data analysis, etc., will require analyzing a big data, but the value will be in having the most integrated possible data going forward. Who is the owner of the data? Will be only the large company being uh, the only one that can, can analyze his own data? Will there, there be a system in which data can be analyzed, maybe anonymized? <laughs> anonymized, can be analyzed uh, by everybody and then the spillover go everywhere. There will need to be a regulation on data will be a value and using the data will, uh, will imply what, what the, the getting all the deficiency in the future or whatever. And we compete with, uh, on the one side, uh, I think in China, probably there is a much more possibility of using <laughs> much more control or whatever. <laughs> but uh, but uh, there is, uh, they are starting to think about what to do uh, on that uh, point of view. On, uh, in the US, uh, the, the data are uh, the big, big companies. So they have uh, all the data they need, et cetera. And we risk uh, to, to have a fragmented information. One example uh, that I'm making, uh, we, were, uh, we were trying to, to talk with uh, some companies on, um, on various issues about uh, digitalization. It's not a part of our uh, standard questionnaire, but we did uh, 20, 30 interviews with uh, digital firms uh, just uh, to have uh, a little bit more the feeling uh, um, of uh, what is happening. And I was uh, talking with a big company that is uh, number three in uh, everything that is uh, climate related, energy, etc. very digital company. And I was asking this thing about uh, data and they were telling me, oh no, no, we are for uh, free, free usage of data. And I was saying, why you are for free user, usage of data? You are number three, you have a lot of data, a lot of information, etc. And they were telling me, look, we are number three, we want the data of number one and two. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes, uh, it really tells you that uh, data is important and we don't know how this thing will be regulated. And I think it's a thing that we have to start uh, thinking and understanding more. <laughs> On the other thing, I, I fully subscribe, you were, sub you were uh, agreeing with me, so I agree with you. <laughs> On, the on all the con comments on digitalization, there is one thing that I didn't mention actually, but uh, that uh, we started making a big case. Um, size of the firms matter for the capacity to exploit the digitalization, and we know Europe has issues in terms of size. So really, this, the, the, the going behind the capacity of firms to scale up and grow is important also for the capacity to really digitalize. And it's something that we think it has to be put much more on the, on the agenda. It's again, we know it, I come from Italy, there are only small firms, not only, but it's a lot of small firms, etc. We are talking about, everybody knows Europe, as a lot of small firms, uh, the scaling up is becoming more important than ever. Yeah. Why don't we take a few questions yeah. from the front and... Uh, okay, okay, I have three questions there, <laughs> two there. Okay, let's start from the gentleman there. Yeah. So in view of the time, why don't we just collect questions? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us where you are and uh, where you are from? First of all, thank you very much to all three speakers. They give a very comprehensive view 
I do have to draw a criticism though. It seems to me you stay in very much what is the actual talk, and, and there is a lot of talk about innovation here and so on, but it's really about still analyzing what digital, I mean, how digitalization will impact and so on, and there is still little thinking outside the box. And, and when I mean, when I say thinking outside the box, uh, in the report, I mean the parts I read, it's 400 pages, so I don't go through all of it yet, um, I see nothing about the culture and creative sector. Culture and creative sector is a very European specificity. Uh, produces five, more than 5% of gross added value in Europe. Uh, employs 12 million people. Uh, it's a lot of SMEs, but they're innovative. They have withstood the crisis much more than other sectors. And there's still very much a lack of policy action in this side. Uh, the Juncker plan tried to address it, partly, and only very late, the culture and creative sector guarantee facility worked with the EIF in particular. The take-up has been late, but it has been good, so good that they actually needed more money from the EIF. What is lacking here is the data on once the contracts are signed, how many uh, companies actually sign up. Uh, and I'm making this point because, of course, we should try and go in fields and sectors where we're not active. But one of the good things, I mean, one of the best ways to improve employment, the economic situation and so on, is to actually build up on what our strengths already are. So I wanted uh, a bit of, uh, of comments okay. on this, thanks. Thank you. Can, can uh, Natasha, but, yeah, okay. please? Yes, thank you. If you could uh, be brief, I'm, that would be helpful, so we can ask uh, others to respect. Uh, I'm Natasha Arvanetti from the Committee of the Regions. Thank you very much for uh, this uh, presentation and discussion. And thank you because we have a very good collaboration with EIB, between the Committee of the Regions and EIB. Uh, and I'm feeling pretty safe in saying that the territorial granularity that we would like to see in the report is not there. Anyway, yeah, we would like to have more territorial uh, things there. Anyway, um, my, my um, thing is that, first of all, I agree with uh, Maria's comments on skills and regulation. But let me ask you this. Uh, the Austrian presidency has uh, held a lot of conferences on AI and financing AI. And uh, a recurring issue was that even though we do have innovative companies, especially spin-out and uh, spin-offs, then they migrate to the US. Do you think that this is caused because we do not have a mature capital market uh, here in Europe or we do not have the right instruments to finance them? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Natasha. That's very clear. The lady here and then we come to this side. Uh, sorry, was this gen to the gentleman at the back. Sorry, there's a lot of questions. But <laughs> Please. So I'm Helena Malikova from Digicom. I just didn't really see the link between some of the conclusions and the findings in the report, the recommendations. In particular, uh, I think one of the concerns was the was not the financing, but in light of uh, Maria's comments, I understand that it would be in the future. But there, I think you conclude that it should be like there should be less restrictions on the deployment of savings across nationalities, whereas the disintermediation should be maybe an issue. And you didn't mention crypto. Because, uh, I mean, crypto might be a reckless solution, but at least it's out there and being discussed. Then I think uh, on the incentives, you, again, it stays very general, and I'm a little bit concerned about patent boxes, because we have patent boxes now for f more than five years, and they seem to have zero impact on, on the investment in intangibles. And I hope you're not advocating for more of that, because in the US, they don't have that, and they don't seem to be suffering mm -hmm. from not having this kind of overboard 
incentives. And I think it goes to Roman's point about, uh, okay, we have to look at what we have in the past and make it smart. And I'm most worried actually about the less of corporate reporting because in the US, the 10K is very detailed and companies themselves uh, keep extremely detailed reporting, especially the big ones on which we are imposing more disclosure. So I think the point is more about disclosure then the granularity, and then I'm very worried because I work with financial data every day, and I would be very concerned if there is even less disclosure on the European side, knowing that we're already not really ahead of the US there. Okay, thank you. Very pointed questions. And two questions there? General. Uh, thank you very much. I'm Antas Akmokas from DG Employment, actually Skills Directorate. Um, and I'm very happy about the number of uh, comments raised and the attention given to skills. And of course, we would be very happy also to share from our perspective the very numerous initiatives that the Commission has initiated, including some addressing uh, the points that Deborah actually asked about, for example, incentivizing. So the current proposal for InvestEU has a social and skills window exactly going in the direction uh, on the incentives. Uh, but I would like to move a little bit direction of a longer term perspective, really uh, questioning whether the narrow around skills is really as one-sided as a gap uh, as was presented in the report. And my point comes from the fact that already since Lisbon Council, since uh, 20 years, I think the EU has been uh, having the targets of enhancing at, at least the formal education levels of the population. And we now have EU 2020 targets on uh, tertiary attainment. Uh, we have the same on early school leaving, which the targets are actually on the road to be achieved by 2020. And in the EU and also in other parts of the world, we have never had that level of, of education of, of people, both younger adults, but also uh, younger people, but also adults. So we have the most educated society that uh, we have had. Um, and though there are definitely some issues in some countries on education and there are other issues, but I think that, uh, or I would ask or invite to reflect on to what extent there is also an issue on more on the company side and not negatively necessarily, but in their capability, interests and incentives more broadly, not only financial incentives from public sector, but incentives more broadly to invest in skills themselves, to hire the people that, uh, that have the skills on the market because you have a lot of those, but being able to pay the salaries that they might request. And I think that might be a more general issue that a number of companies across Europe, especially in regions that have lower price levels and uh, lower salary levels, in, in particular for the non-tradable sectors, really have difficulties in being uh, able to hire the skills they need, even if the skills are on the market, but they don't have the financial capabilities. So I think that is another very important part of the, of the discussion of the skills, and not only the general lack of skills or skills as a, as a, as a, as a barrier in, in the market. Uh, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Can I have a last question there, the gentleman next to you? Yeah, and then I'll come back to, come back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Laurent Bonneau. I'm an economic historian. I have uh, one comment and two questions, two short questions. Very uh, short, please. We have five minutes. Try to focus. Minutes. Okay. Uh, about governance versus funding or finance, I just want to support very strongly this point. Um, I coordinated a recent study about the Channel Tunnel, which was the biggest private, privately financed infrastructure uh, ever built. Um, one of the conclusions was that uh, the f much focus has been done on funding for obvious reasons on, on finance, but the actual point was governance was uh, the risk 
reward sharing in the contracts, which has uh, been always revised and changed to, to be adapted to the infrastructure. So there was really a lack of concept from the origin of the project, which has been improved after that. And, and now the concessionary company is working and doing well. But uh, the issue is really that governance point and what can we do to leverage the knowledge we have in Europe because we have huge experience in infrastructure funding and the uh, EIB uh, first and foremost. So what can we do to leverage this to improve the governance in our investments? Two short questions relating to finance. Uh, do you consider that long-term finance is an issue? Uh, and if yes, what would you suggest to improve long-term investment conditions? Um, last question related to productivity and digitalization and the correlation between them, which is quite disputed currently uh, in research. So what is your point about Thank that? Thank you very much. Yeah, you. That's, that's a very pointed question, actually. Uh, why don't we do the following? We can, can I give you the floor first so that uh, Deborah has the last, uh, the last word? <laughs> <laughs> Roman, can I ask for you if you can pick one or two questions that uh, you would like yeah. to comment? Speak the difficult ones. <laughs> 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 no, you take the remaining, so, okay. Okay, it's a, it's a hard choice because I find that... Uh, I don't know if this is working. Hello, hello, hello. They will, they will be coordinated from there. So it's really a hard choice because I think many of those questions are extremely important. You know, uh, all of them were, were, were quite, uh, quite to the point. I would go perhaps, you know, for the skills question, just to add a little bit more of uh, gasoline in the fire, you know, in the discussion. But I think that uh, what has been said here has been quite, uh, quite relevant. What the EMPL, uh, DG employment colleague was, was saying as well, I think is, is quite crucial. For me, the issue is not only the need for upskilling and reskilling of uh, labor force, you know, which is clearly one of the issues, but it's actually what can we do taking into account the national contexts? Because national contexts are very different. Countries are very different, for instance, if I think about innovation, about their economic structure of these countries is determining where they are placed in the innovation ecosystem. So can the STI capacity of the country is also key. Uh, so, I mean, we need to take into account all these uh, national contexts in order to be able to build on the strengths. And you were mentioning the aspect of Bulgaria, you know, the, as one of the countries. I think Bulgaria, for example, has a very strong uh, human capital talent in the area of ICT where they are actually having a lot of penetration from the international firms that are actually operating there, you know, kind of using the, the labor force of Bulgaria, but not really reverting uh, back, let's say, the benefits uh, to, to the local arena. So I think the national context is extremely important. Then also there is the question, which skills are we talking about here? Um, are we talking about, uh, let's say, the digital skills, exclusively, or also all of the types of cognitive and non-cognitive skills, you know, problem-solving capacities, etc., which are very important, I think, in the area of intangibles. And then there are issues relating to timing as well, in the sense that we have a tendency to front-load uh, our skills acquisition uh, in the education process, but there is also a lot that is happening now because of the digital angle, you know, further downstream, more connected to the job. So how can we build that transition? And what is the role of the private and the public sector in all of this? I think this is extremely important. Um, and just one very briefly on the regulation aspect, because there was um, a colleague that was mentioning in the room that uh, regulations tended to be a little bit backward looking. 
But I think you can also do uh, kind of your job or your homework to make regulations a little bit more forward-looking by, for example, looking in the area of innovation at uh, what we call the innovation principle. So can we have a look at all the regulations that are made at EU level in order to make sure that these forthcoming regulations are going to be compliant to some extent you know, with the needs of uh, the European market in terms of innovation. Or we can think about innovation deals around concrete technologies where you get together all the stakeholders and try to discuss you know, what, they are, what are their needs in the future. You know, we have done this in terms of uh, looking at areas like batteries and water and this has proven very useful as well. So I think the, for me these are the two main uh, issues that I picked up. Thank you very much, Mario. Yeah, maybe two Next. issues. One also on the trade-off between disclosure and reducing burden. I think that's extremely well said. And uh, I don't think actually that the replies we had from the, from the call for evidence called for uh, a reduction of the disclosure. I think this is part of the key, and I agree with you that what we have uh, is necessary in order for us to do our job. The issue was more on whether they were asked uh, many times the same thing by different people, and therefore it is the cost of compliance. But it is not the compliance in itself, in particular with the data disclosure. But I think you do very well to, to, to put it in evidence, and we should always say. Um, the other issue was uh, on is long-term finance a, a, an issue that you asked? Uh, you know, I mean, I, it is, it, I mean, that's a one million question, okay? Because it would mean to to, to be able to guess what are the financing conditions in the future. But I would I would say, as always, an economist response: it depends, and it depends on what on two things. One, I think, is uh, regulation for long-term finance. There you have a point. In the past, we have run to change a bit uh, some of the regulation that was obviously discouraging uh, long-term finance. Um, typically also, I mean, equity share, and uh, your experience of the channel tunnel is very clear. Uh, equity share is a long-term thing, and, uh, and that's the way to look. And, uh, and we have had, uh, and we have had some, uh, some regulation that, uh, that, that had to be changed in order to make that uh, very, very functional. And then the last point is, uh, clearly depends on the market condition. It's obvious that if you have a nearly horizontal uh, interest rate curve, then, uh, then the long-term financing becomes pretty difficult. When the curve goes, uh, goes upward uh, at some point, and I'm making no comment on whether it's good or not, because that's the first thing we learn as commission officials, never comment on monetary policy. So I have no clue whatsoever. But uh, disregarding that, uh, uh, it's clear that whether the curve is flat or is upward sloping, it changes a lot for the incentive of long-term finance. And if I may, the very last thing, Maria, on you, the regulation always corrects the error of the past. No, I disagree. I'm very sorry. Because, uh, uh, I mean, it does most of the times, but it can also be helpful for the future. And we've seen that a lot in crisis with the anticipation. For example, how many of you know that uh, the Basel rules enter a final in force on the 1st of January 2019. None of you knows it, because everybody put them in force from 2013, the day after that they were approved, and that the last year is, uh, is next year, none knows it. So I think somehow regulation, uh, if it is not overly prescriptive, if it indicates a trend, if it indicates a change in, uh, in what you have to do, it may work for the future. End of my call. Uh, Deborah, you've got three minutes to respond to the remainder of the questions. <laughs> okay, 
it's a lot. Just just uh, another thing on employment. We all get, go back on the employment part. My 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 point is, uh, I think you are definitely right that uh, firms have to do their part in training. Uh, the question that I have is uh, if uh, it's uh, too much for firms alone. So if uh, we have. Uh, um, I don't remember anymore the number, around 20% of jobs at risk of automation. Who is going to take care of this? Is it too big for the future? Firms have to do what is in their own interest today, but if it's too big an issue, I think we need more policy action. And again, I think the... The, the, the point that the policies that address the issue of skills are perfect policy to tackle two things at once, the social dimension and the economic dimension. So to me, those are the policies that are needed in Europe today uh, in the current environment. And, uh, and that's uh, on uh, the employment part. I think on the, on the issue of uh, home bias in a redistribution of saving at the European uh, level, I think uh, on that, by I focus on that point of view. I think uh, one thing that we have seen a lot is uh, in some of the Nordic countries, uh, very strong uh, um, home bias in savings. And then you see we are not still seeing bubbles, but you think uh, quite some investment going in real estate. And uh, there is a very strong uh, resistance uh, to move savings uh, in other areas of uh, Europe and uh, maybe there is a much more uh, attitude that we're going to our emerging market. I okay, you have a risk, return, etc. There are many considerations behind that, but uh, the point is are we losing an opportunity in Europe of uh, the real integrated uh, uh, the financial market that, uh, that, uh, that uh, would support a more uh, intra-European growth while avoiding uh, bubbles in some countries. So, so I think uh, that's everything that you are doing with the Banking Union Capital Market Union is <laughs> try to go in that direction. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, there are many reasons behind, but there is, a, there is a still a strong home bias in some, uh, or, uh, or uh, maybe not a home bias, a bias against something, against some neighbors. <laughs> that, that, I think, is uh, still very much visible. Um, on, uh, we didn't use a territorial data, that's true, but we went a lot on the regional level. We have a lot of analysis at the regional level, and we didn't go very much at the territorial level. We have other works, actually. We just published a report on smart cities that whoever is interested can, can look at it, and we try to go also uh, more. What else? I think I, I, think I, I, think I think I'm fine. I promise Thank we will you. ask you to come back and talk about this issue because these issues will be with us for some time. Okay. In the meantime, thank you all for, for coming, for asking questions and for, for joining us. And please join me in thanking our panelists for very interesting discussions.